You are listening to You Are Not Broken, the only podcast that combines science, medicine, and psychology to re-educate your brain and help you live your best love life. And I'm your host, board-certified female urologist, Dr. Kelly Kasperson. To introduce Dr. Kelly Kasperson, I'm Jana Thompson, past president, and I'm pleased all of you could make it. Dr. Kelly Kasperson's from the great state of Washington and has really created a mission to educate women about their bodies and sex and sort of demystify things that we're taught that aren't necessarily true and really empower women to understand their bodies and understand sex and hormones. And so I'm really excited that she can join us tonight. She has published a book called You Are Not Alone, as well as a podcast and quite a active Instagram page regarding this endeavor. And so tonight she'll be speaking to us about hormones, specifically hormones aren't just for men, menopause and hormone therapy in the modern era. What's understood about hormones, what's safe to do and and what how we can help ourselves and our female patients. So without further ado, Kelly, thank you. Hi, thanks for having me. This is a great turnout. Super weird. There's like another person up here that says Kelly Casperson. And I'm just dying to meet that person. Welcome everybody. So I'm Dr. Kelly Casperson. I'm a urologist. I practice in Washington State and I'm going to go basic and then I'm going to go deep. My plan today is to get people not scared of hormones. And my second plan today is to impart the importance that I have and I want you guys to have in equality in healthcare and look at how we treat the female gender in healthcare. And the privilege of being a urologist is I take care of a lot of men. And we simply treat them different when it comes to quality of life and when it comes to hormones. And so really when I got on this journey and I'll share with you how I got to where I am being a urologist who is an expert in hormones, but um, really what keeps me going is the equality piece and realizing that until we're all treated equally, until we think that everybody's quality of life matters, until we think that scaring people is not the right thing to do. And until we empower people to say your body, your choice, until we do that across the board to everybody, we have a lot of work to do. So to me, this is a, this is a quality. I think one of the unique things that sets urologists apart from OB-GYNs in this world of sexuality and this world of hormones that I've found myself in is the fact that we take care of all genders. We take care of the men and we I, for one, I'm sure you guys do too, but I, for one, see it every single day that we simply don't treat them the same. We are tolerant, I think, of a lot more suffering when it comes to taking care of women and letting them suffer for a lot longer. And this is not just my opinion. There's tons of statistics on this. So I just wanted to explain like how I didn't just get here because residency taught me how to, number one, take care of women, number two, take care of women's sexual health, and number three, take care of women's hormone needs. I did not get that in residency training. I got that seven years into a private practice because I decided that this was very important. I decided that learning the facts is not hard. Number two, it's fascinating. And number three, I can help so many more people now because of what I know. So I wanted to share that all with you and I will share screen. And we'll go from there. See how this other person says Kelly Casperson up here? Is it freaking anybody else out? Just me? Okay. So I'm a urologist. When I was in residency, I was told that 
women are different. Literally, I was told this. This was not like passively, passively absorbed by me. Women are challenging. They take too long in the clinic. I should do a fellowship if I don't want to deal with women. I know I'm not the only person who did a urologic training who was told this. Put a QR code here for anybody who wants to follow my Instagram because I'm most active on Instagram and for any sort of follow-up questions. So women were complicated. I was literally told at the residence, do they still do this? You go do that resident like basic science course. I don't know if they got rid of that because of the pandemic. I remember being at the, at the basic science residence course and a guy standing on stage talking about a male erectile dysfunction, literally saying women are complicated. We may never figure them out. So that's what I thought. So I have no relevant disclosures. My opinion is spattered in here. Believe me, I'm, I have opinions, but I really believe in following guidelines evidence-based stuff. So I'm not going to go down the crazy cliff of woo-woo hormones. And I I don't think I have any commercial bias. So definition of menopause, where we are in this is, it's a retrospective definition. It is one year after not having a natural period. It's difficult because a lot of people have IUDs and hysterectomies, right? And so we don't always know, but average age 51 in the United States of America, most people do not know this. If you think of a menopausal woman in your head, usually you're going to like your, your brain's going to think of like Betty White and the Golden Girls. These are 50 year olds. Perimenopause, meaning surrounding menopause up to the 10 years before menopause. So I was literally like hanging out with my dad like a couple of weeks ago. And I was like, is it warm in here? Or is it just my perimenopause? And he's like, what do you mean? And I'm like, dad, average age is 51, perimenopause, 10 years surrounding. So by definition, I'm perimenopausal. People don't know what this means. We have literally erased this natural occurrence from society's zeitgeist. So I'm going to start a little bit talking about GSM because as urologists, we're, you know, take home whether or not you're going to, whether or not you're going to decide to prescribe systemic hormones to all peoples. If you're a urologist, you must treat GSM. You see it every single day. Even if you just take out kidneys that your post-op patient is going to come back with recurrent UTIs. We got to know about GSM. So GSM is highly, highly prevalent, 50 to 80% postmenopause. It's the wonderful symptoms that keep on giving. The worse, the longer you go past menopause. So I see people, you know, eight years postmenopause. And I say, did you know this is a menopause because of menopause and low hormones? And they're like, oh, menopause happened 10 years ago. And I went through menopause just fine. Most people think menopause is a hot flash, right? And if, they, if you didn't have a hot flash, you didn't go through menopause is what a lot of people think. Bulvar estrogen for all. Yeah. I can see the chat box. This is awesome. Okay. So GSM, we must know about it. We must know that the bladder, the vulva, the clitoris, the vagina, all of the pelvic organs go through changes when estrogen is withdrawn from the body. I actually asked a couple this this week. Oh, they were like 60 years old, a male and female heterosexual couple. And I said, what's his estrogen level? And he's like, I, I don't know. The guys don't think they have estrogen, right? I'm like, it's about, you know, 40. 40 to 70. And I'm like, what's her estrogen level? She's like, I don't know. And I'm like, it's probably like 10 or seven. And I'm like, right now in this room, he has more estrogen in his body than you do, which really opens up people's eyes of like, oh, men have estrogen and postmenopausal women have less estrogen than the men do. So it's interesting on social media, just to go off on a tangent, the arguments people have over this is natural and what that means on our interpretation of if we should treat it or not. I would argue urinary tract infections are natural, but we choose to treat them to relieve suffering. Very fascinating. So general urinary syndrome and menopause, I've circled in red all the things we see urologists for. 
dysuria, recurrent UTIs, burning, itching, dryness, urethral prolapse. How many people do I see from gynecology for urethral mass, which is postmenopausal aversion of the urethra? Fix it with just a little bit of vaginal estrogen all the time. Pain with sex. Notice that this wonderful, what is this? This is a JAMA. This is a JAMA image. Nothing about the clitoris, nothing about decreased arousal, nothing about decreased orgasm. No sexual stuff is put in here. And I would argue that it's not because it doesn't happen. It's because they just didn't put it in the JAMA article. But certainly we are urologists. We are comfortable with sex. We are comfortable with hormones. We need to know all of this. So GSM. <laughs> Dr. Thompson, I love that UTIs are natural. Menopause is natural too. Doesn't mean we don't treat it. Femur fractures, when you fall, are natural. Doesn't mean we don't treat it. All right, so vaginal estrogen, real quick, just because your patients are going to say like, I don't want any systemic hormones. Vaginal estrogens, unless it's the femring, FDA approved femring is your only vaginal systemic hormone option. You measure your blood after you take a vaginal estrogen product and it is not measurable. 25 for estrogen, that's still a postmenopausal level. When you're pregnant, your estrogen level is over 900. When you're in your 20s and 30s, your estrogen level is usually, you know, 300, 400, depends upon where you are in your cycle, right? So if you have an estrogen at 20, it's still pretty menopausal. I don't do loading doses on vaginal estrogen products. Number one, I think it's confusing. Number two, I think some people do get a little bit of systemic absorption in the beginning because they have thinned tissues until those tissues heal. I don't want people to call and tell me they have breast tenderness. I don't want people to call and tell me they have migraines. So I never do the loading dose. I never want people to call and be like, how long am I supposed to do it for two weeks straight and then twice a week? I just do it twice a week till you're dead. So. There's amazing urology data in the menopause journal. No urologist ever reads the menopause journal except for me because now I'm menopause certified and I have a podcast and I'm very passionate about hormones. But there's good urology stuff in the menopause journal that we never read. For example, did you know that anticholinergics are equivalent in efficacy to estrogen? Estrogen fixes the pathology. It restores function. Anticholinergics cause issues. They're equivalent. Why we don't have to fail vaginal estrogen before we can go to third line therapies for the OAB people is beyond me. I think everybody with OAB by default needs a vaginal estrogen product. Amazing articles are in the menopause. Uh, there you go. Keep writing down your take home messages twice a day till you're dead. How long do I have to use this until you're dead? And like I say that to be dramatic to patients so they remember. Like how many patients do we see who are like, oh, I use that estrogen for, I literally saw a GSM patient, 52, saw a gynecologist in Seattle. They did a biopsy and she's getting acupuncture. That's her current treatment for her GSM. She said her vaginal estrogen didn't work because it didn't help her symptoms after two weeks. Vaginal estrogen takes six to eight weeks. You know, to, it's restoring function, right? It's like seeing improvement in your skin. So Vaginal estrogen, completely safe. It doesn't cause breast cancer. It doesn't cause uterine cancer. It does not need a progestin to protect the uterus. This is very important. Talk about that when we get to systemic estrogen. But you're going to see in the vaginal estrogen handout that it causes all these things. It causes blood clots. It causes cancer. It also says on there, and I shit you not, it says probable dementia. Probable dementia is what the FDA-approved pamphlet on vaginal estrogen products said. The reason for that is the FDA says they, you need to have a class labeling. No matter the dose, no matter the route, it must all say the same thing. A lot of those labels come from the Women's Health Initiative, which we'll get into. But we're actually doing it like, follow me, follow Rachel Rubin. 
because we are actually going to do a grassroots, get the label changed on the vaginal estrogen product. ACOG tried to do it in 2018. The FDA said you don't have enough data to say that vaginal estrogen is significantly more safer than systemic. We think we do now. And we think this is preventing women from getting a safe, effective treatment because it literally says it's going to kill you and cause probable dementia incredibly safe product. It's over-the-counter. FYI, vaginal estrogen products over-the-counter in at least four countries now. Just went over-the-counter in UK, Finland, Israel, maybe Australia, but it's over-the-counter. And I don't see that happening here. Let's roll back to the 60s and the 70s. Estrogen in oral form has been around for a long time. Estrogen, as you can see, this is Premarin, right? Marketed to men to give to their spouses. Very patriarchal. Husbands too like Premarin, keep her youthful. So one might argue we had too many people on hormones because we were just giving it to everybody, any risk factor. When estrogen was at its heyday in the 70s, 80s, I'd say 90s, it was the fifth most prescribed medication in the nation. We forget right now with how incredibly scared we are of this very safe drug that it was like the fifth most common prescribed medication. 70% of women post-menopause were on systemic hormones. We have erased this from memory. We have erased this from fact. Nobody knows this. This is how many people were on these hormones. And you'll see them. Oh yeah, the Dr. Weinberg just put up in the comments, listen to Peter Atias, who's a fantastic physician, podcaster, surgeon. If I can just plug, plug his uh, skills, surgeon fantastic proponent of women's hormones. I literally remember where I was in the car when I heard him on the Huberman Lab podcast saying, the Women's Health Initiative has done the most damage to our public health and women's health in the last two decades. And I was like, thank you, Peter. So nice. So very common medication used in very many people used for cardiac health, used for cardiac prevention. And then they said, well, we don't have any randomized control trial data on that. Let's do one. Thus, the Women's Health Initiative was born. Women's Health Initiative was born saying, can we give estrogen for primary prevention of heart disease? That was the big question that the Women's Health Initiative was trying to answer and trying to figure out like, how the heck did we get to this place? Right now, about 5% of postmenopausal women and again, I'm lumping into postmenopause, but you can take hormone therapy for perimenopause too. It might be another webinar, but you don't have to be a full year without periods. That's a big myth that's out there. You have to be a full year without periods before starting hormone therapy. You simply do not. But 5% of women are on hormones now. About 70% of women were on hormones prior to the Women's Health Initiative. So the forgotten state of menopause, why is this or the Women's Health Initiative? We have two decades worth of physicians who are not trained on menopause. Menopause happens to 50% of the population if you're lucky enough to live past the age of 50. This is a big, big, big state, natural or not, disease state or not. The Instagram people will fight with you. It is huge. It is common. And two decades of physicians did not learn anything about it in medical school since the Women's Health Initiative came out. So this is just showing you what's happening in, the, in Britain. Britain is ahead of America, I think, for a couple of reasons. Number one reason is their government's in charge of their healthcare, and their government wants to decrease costs in their healthcare. And they know that putting women on hormones actually is healthy and will decrease costs over time. Our insurance system in America doesn't really care what you're doing in a couple of years because you've switched your insurance by then. Studies show that. They do not have to care about you long-term because most people will change their insurance within three to four years on average. So 
Britain has a healthcare system that cares about women and how they're aging. And Britain also is very motivated to keep women in the workforce. There was just a New York Times article looking at workforce stuff in America now. So that's great. But I would say the UK is ahead of us. They actually have multiple shortages. Right now, they have a shortage of micronized progesterone because more and more women are getting on. The demand is skyrocketing as awareness and safety is kind of coming back into the zeitgeist. So we have four FDA-approved indications for hormone therapy in this country. A lot of people don't know this. It is FDA-approved for prevention of osteoporosis. Why in this country, if menopause is at 50, is the first time you're told to get a DEXA scan to check for osteoporosis at age 65? Why are we not preventing this? Why are we checking for it once it's happened and possibly you've come out of your window of when you can start hormone therapy? This is fascinating. If I, got, if I had done anything today, I've made you guys think, and that's what I'm here for. Treatment of vasomotor symptoms. That's your hot flashes, night sweats. Premature ovarian insufficiency. What's this definition? Early menopause is less than 45. Premature or very early is under 40. National guidelines say if you are that young, it is standard of care to put people on systemic hormones. Neurologists aren't all going to see this because we don't do the hysterectomies and oophorectomies. But I see it often in my practice because if you have your ovaries removed, you're going to get GSM. You come and see me and I see that you haven't been put on hormones. When, when standard of care is to get these women on hormones until natural age of menopause, and one would argue you can keep going if the benefits outweigh the risks. Number four, GSM, which AUA is coming out with GSM guidelines 2024, 2025, which will be great. Usually just a local product for that, right? Systemic doesn't always cover your GSM needs, you can be on both systemic and vaginal. We can talk about that too, if you want to. But so we have four FDA approved indications for hormones. So in 2001, the Women's Health Initiative came out and this lurched to a halt the 70% of women in our country that were on hormones. The media took this, the study was stopped prematurely because of an increased risk of estrogen in the, sorry, increased risk of breast cancer in the combo estrogen progestin arm, went to the media, and the media went to town with it. We have successfully scared doctors. We successfully scared women. We pulled 70% of women off of hormones. I see, not infrequently, women. I saw a 90-year-old woman last week who is still on oral estrogen. I, see, I frequently see women in their 80s on, oral, uh, on systemic hormones. And they're the over my dead body group of people. So there's some that snuck through. It's amazing. I still meet them. They look fantastic. They're doing very great. And they're like, you will stop this over my dead body. So we now know the tides have, has appropriately turned on the Women's Health Initiative study, but they applied the risk of hormones to everybody. And they said that they were going for high impact on the media on this. And they wanted to shake up the medical establishment and change the thinking about hormones. They succeeded. We scared people completely inappropriately. We now know, oops. Right. But I, I say that as an as a menopause expert, I don't think a lot of people know that we now know oops. So Association of Menopause Hormone Therapy with Breast Cancer Incidents during the long-term follow-up. Papers kept coming out after the Women's Health Initiative. This one is a JAMA paper, came out in 2020. So follow-up. If you took estrogen alone, and to clarify for the people who don't know, systemic estrogen alone, if you have a uterus, increases your risk of uterine cancer from baseline, baseline risk of uterine cancer, which is pretty low, I'm ballpark off the top of my head, 3%, right? 
increases that by five to 10%. So it doesn't mean you're going to get uterine cancer. It just means you're going to increase your risk of uterine cancer. And that risk is mitigated when you take a progestin. Good to know. So they had two arms in the Women's Health Initiative study, the people who had uteruses and the people who didn't have uteruses. And so they said the estrogen alone arm actually decreased breast cancer incidence and lower breast cancer mortality. That did not make the news, you guys. We have something that decreases your breast cancer incidence and mortality, and that did not make the news. What made the news was that if you had a uterus, so you had a conjugated estrogen plus synthetic progestin, which we don't use anymore. We use air quotes, bioidentical. So these are medications, the Women's Health Initiative medications. We don't actually use them anymore in standard menopause care. Good to know. They said, well, if anything, it's the progestin the synthetic progestin. It's going to give you a higher breast cancer incidence, but no significant difference in mortality. Also very important to know. What is that incidence? If baseline incidence of breast cancer is four out of a thousand over five years, combo estrogen progestin was five out of a thousand over five years. So four to five increases your incidence by about 20 to 25%. Relative risk increase. Absolute risk increase is one woman out of a thousand over five years. But try explaining relative and absolute risk to a doctor, let alone the entire population. So risk is overblown. It does not mean 25% more people are getting breast cancer. It means 25% risk from baseline four to five out of a thousand over five years. All right, well, fair enough. Maybe it's the synthetic progesterone, but maybe it wasn't. The Women's Health Initiative did not randomize people for the risk factors for breast cancer. In addition, they had people in their placebo arm who previously had taken estrogen. So when you look at the placebo group with the combo, all I'm doing is I'm building a case for you guys. Let's step back. I'm building a case for you that estrogen does not cause cancer. Estrogen actually decreases your risk of cancer and decreases your mortality if you were to get diagnosed with breast cancer because breast cancer is still quite common. I can't make that go away, but I I am here to decrease fear. All right, so let's argue that it's the synthetic progestin that might raise it slightly, but some other experts will argue, yeah, but your placebo arm is flawed. Specifically, the placebo arm had taken estrogen previously. So if they previously took a drug that lowers your risk of breast cancer, how can you match them and say that this new thing actually increases your risk of breast cancer? The placebo arm, and you can see this in the other graph, actually has a much lower risk of breast cancer consistent with them having some, not all, previously been on estrogen. So 10,000 view. Number one, I'm going to make you not afraid of estrogen. Number two, I'm probably going to hopefully not make you afraid of the micronized progesterone that we use now because it's bioidentical. If If there is a progestin that causes breast cancer, it is the synthetic one. And some people will even argue that the placebo arm was flawed on it. So you can't even even say that. But there's your menu platter for what are we really afraid of at this point? So this just looks at how much we stopped prescribing hormone replacement therapy. Gray area was before Women's Health Initiative. White is after. So we took all the women off of hormones. Are hormones good for us? What did they do? They help with vasomotor symptoms, sleep, general urinary syndrome of menopause, sexual function, skin. If we just want to be vanity, you guys, let's just be vain, all right? It helps with skin. It helps with hair. I'm on a a compounded estrogen face cream because why not? 
right? It's great for collagen, it's great for blood flow, and it's great for elastin. Macular degeneration decreases rate of all fractures, joint pain. How many of us are athletic and are noticing increased joint pain with, as we age? Reduces fatty liver, reduces the risk that you're going to be diagnosed with diabetes. Estrogen is anti-inflammatory and it helps with insulin sensitivity. Decreased risk of Alzheimer's disease and all-cause dementia, depression, mood, anxiety, cardiovascular disease, and decreased risk of colorectal cancer by the rate of 30% in the Women's Health Initiative. That didn't make the news. None of this made the news. So just for a second, because we're urologists and we care about sex, what about systemic hormones and desire? Because I didn't put that on my last list. I put GSM. But what about sex? So top two reasons that women in perimenopause and postmenopause stop having sex. Number three on here is uh, availability of partner, which I can't, we can't help with that. Vasomotor symptoms and GSM. These are both treatable conditions. This is why women stop having... It's not because like estrogen went down, so their desire went down. It's because estrogen went down, which gave them symptoms, which made them exhausted and not feel great. So their desire for sex went down. So we have mixed studies on this. You're going to find plenty of studies that say women after uh, menopause who don't have estrogen, either they weren't given it or they can't, they have a contraindication. It does not affect their desire. So hormones are not a light switch of you'll have desire and you won't. It's more nuanced than that because desire is more nuanced than that. But we have mixed studies, which is great for the women who can't take estrogen. I don't want anybody to feel completely up a, up a creek. Estrogen therapy and sexuality. Hormone of receptivity is estrogen. You give rats estrogen, they do that like back curve thing. This is their approach behavior of like, it's okay to approach me now. Estrogen is more a receptivity, which I would argue is sexuality. A woman's receptivity to sexual activity is part of her sexuality. Testosterone being the active pursuing or spontaneous desire hormone, if we're going to stereotype hormones. Systemic hormone therapy improves blood flow to the clitoris compared to controls. We have all this data. It's all been done. You guys are all vaginal estrogen experts now as far as that also helping preserve labia minora function, preserve clitoral function, prevention of phimosis, and allowing arousal because you have decent blood flow. So we need to talk about the critical window and the healthy cell bias hypothesis. Can we just now that we know estrogen is good for us, can we just put everybody on estrogen now? No. And the reason is the critical window and the healthy cell bias. If you're going to start being on hormone replacement therapy, menopause replacement therapy is what it's called now, it's better to do it, meaning you're going to have decreased risks of side effects or consequences, the younger you are. And the, by younger, they mean less amount of time it's been since you've started menopause. So this is basically meaning why the baby boomers are pissed. The baby boomers are pissed right now. Because they've been told their whole postmenopausal life that estrogen is going to cause them breast cancer and they're going to die. And now they're hearing that estrogen is really wonderful and they saw their mom die of a broken hip and Alzheimer's. So they're motivated. And a lot of them have aged out of this critical window and healthy cell bias. Your body is aging without hormones. If you had ages too long and then you throw estrogen on, you can destabilize and people can do worse. So really our window is about 10 years. Does that mean 10 years in one day you can, can no longer be on hormones? No, because we're all unique individual snowflakes and one woman's risk is not going to be the same as another woman. But really within 10 years is what the menopause guidelines say. To get the benefit for Alzheimer's prevention, really the younger is the better. Within five years is what they're saying for as far as preservation of neurologic health. There's a study out of Kaiser, retrospective chart review, 
But looking at, and again, you're going to have a healthy bias on this, looking at people on hormones versus not, decreased risk of every neurologic disorder that they studied, multiple sclerosis, Parkinson's disease, vascular dementia, Alzheimer's dementia, all of it. So this is just looking at two things. Number one, what happens to our arteries after we stop estrogen and how we start getting plaque buildup in these necrotic cores. If you then start estrogen later, the risk is destabilizing these plaques. This is why in the Women's Health Initiative, we saw those women increase risk of stroke and cardiovascular events because the majority of women studied in the Women's Health Initiative were 10 plus years post-menopause. The women who were studied, 20% of women who were less than that had decreased cardiovascular risks. Thus, this is where we say, if you're gonna start, start relatively young because you are gonna increase your risk of cardiovascular events, strokes, even increased risk of dementia, Alzheimer's when started late post-menopause. So you gotta get the estrogen back on when the, health, the cells are still healthy. Well, what about the risk of DVT? Oh, I don't know. It's way lower than the risk of DVT with pregnancy. I think it's very important when we scare people to put it in perspective. Yeah, there is an increased risk of blood clot with oral systemic estrogen, not vaginal, and also not patch. Patch does not go through the liver. We avoid first pass metabolism. And that's where the clotting risk comes from because it goes to the liver. Still, the clotting risk is less than the risk of clot with being pregnant. So let's not scare people without providing context. And I think we do that all the time. So heart health, 30% reduction in all-cause mortality in the younger women between the ages of 50 and 60. Significant reduction in coronary disease and the 10-year follow-up showed that the young women had a significantly reduced risk of myocardial infarction. Estrogen is heart protective, but it must be started young because of that critical window healthy cell hypothesis. Multiple studies on this, UK study uh, in a retrospective, 9% decrease in all-cause mortality and an increase in life expectancy. If there was a drug that gave you three more years of life and decreased your all-cause mortality between the ages of 50 and 60, would every man be on it? And I ask them, right? I ask all the partners that come to my club, would you take that drug? They're like, yeah, yeah, I would take that drug. And I'm like, yeah, I would too. We have it. We actually have that drug. And it's not called Lipitor which 25% of people between the ages of 50 and 60 are on and 70% of people age 70 and over are on. And Lipitor does not give you this. Yet it's the, uh, one of the most commonly prescribed drugs in the entire world. So 30% decrease in all-cause mortality. Every man would be on it if they had a choice to be on it. Things that we give people to try to help them, like statins, do not come near this. I found some data that in very select people, you're going to get up to like a 9% reduction in cardiovascular events with statins, but not on a population level. So my argument is if men had this, they would be on it. And there is not another drug that comes close to matching these statistics. So benefits of hormone therapy, you're going to get better sleep. Anybody who's seen or had a hot flash or has not slept it's not like, oh, just wait, right? Just wait till that gets over. It is very disruptive. Women drop out of the workforce. We have plenty of data that women drop out of the workforce because of untreated menopause symptoms, costing the UK and United States of America billions of dollars in lost revenue because these women are not being supported in their most productive, highest earning years in their quality of life. Decreased depression and anxiety. Now we have plenty of data saying 
If you look at the rates of antidepressant prescriptions between the ages of 40 and 50, it skyrockets to the point that 25% of women are on anti-anxiety and anti-depression meds. Not saying they're not important for the right people, but with mood changes, secondary to perimenopause and menopause, the first line therapy should be hormones. Much safer. Black box warning also doesn't say possible suicide, which is what's on antidepressants. And I don't say this to be inflammatory. I just say it to say, we took everybody off of hormones because of a fake risk of breast cancer. And we give people much more risky drugs than hormones, you guys. We give people things that can kill them all the time. Doctors do it all the time. But somehow estrogen hormones have just become like the scariest thing in the world. And then to put the fear of breast cancer, like breast cancer is real. It is devastating. I saw a patient today in clinic with devastating breast cancer who is on vaginal estrogen prescribed by our oncologist because it's, it's okay to be on that. So that was awesome to see. By age 50, a woman's risk of dying of heart disease is much greater than her risk of dying from breast cancer. Other benefits of hormone therapy, reduce risk of cardiovascular disease, reduces your colon cancer, increases your longevity, decreases risk of neurologic dysfunction, and it makes your skin look really good. It's nice. So do systemic hormones help the urology patient? Let's pretend that not everybody here is going to go out and prescribe systemic hormones. That's fine. You don't have to. I'm not asking you to. But what I am asking you to consider is we never got taught how good hormones are systemically or vaginally for the urology patient. So these are young people. Again, these are people like who are 50, 51. These are not like our 80-year-olds. But we've got odds of having OEB was greater in postmenopausal women not using hormone therapy compared to premenopausal. And remember, you can't just start your 80-year-old on systemic hormones. You've got to start them early. So there is some people that, you, sorry, honey, you just got to get vaginal estrogen. But systemic hormones help urology patients. It is the coolest thing, the coolest thing you never learned. We've got a paper, again, look at where this paper's from, amazing journal called Menopause. So urologists are never, ever going to read this. Hormone therapy is a possible solution for nocturia. Their primary reason why is these women are just sleeping better. If you're sleeping better, you're getting up less to pee. But they're also saying, you know, there is some hormonal work on the bladder that it's probably doing. We just never read the menopause journal. Also, the role of systemic testosterone on stress incontinence. We've got a couple of papers out on the role of testosterone and incontinence, probably through improved skeletal muscle, improved pelvic floor. Amazing podcasts need amazing sponsors. And today our podcast partner is AG1, the daily foundational nutrition supplement that supports whole body health. I drink AG1 in the morning driving to work and it makes me feel like I'm doing something good for my body, like I'm covering my nutritional bases before the day gets away from me. I gave AG1 a try because I hated taking pills and vitamins and wanted a supplement that actually tastes great and helps me get my hydration in. And it's super tasty, like fresh and somewhat chocolatey. I feel like I'm describing a fine wine here and I'm no expert, but it's delicious. I haven't found anything similar that's as tasty. If you're looking for a simpler, effective investment for your health, try AG1 and get five free AG1 travel packs and a free one-year supply of vitamin D with your first purchase. Go to drinkag1.com slash you are not broken. That's drinkag1.com slash you are not broken. Check it out. Oh, good question, Dr. Thompson. Do you recommend starting vaginal estrogen in perimenopause before symptoms? I love this question. I would love to see, like, I'll help somebody write this up for AUA News or something. So here's my thoughts. 
Western medicine is very good at treating disease. We are very bad at preventing disease. Why must we create a dysfunction in the 50 to 80% of people? We're not trying to like prevent 2% of people from not having dysfunction. So if we know if GSM is going to be significant in 50 to 80% of people, why are we waiting for them to come to a doctor to tell us they have symptoms before we prevent this? Again, vaginal estrogen over the counter in multiple countries, incredibly safe. So I would say prevent. But it's a big ask. You've got a patient in your, in your room who knows nothing about hormones, who still thinks estrogen is going to kill her, who's going to read the vaginal estrogen pamphlet that says probable dementia, and you have a 10-minute visit to convince her she should have preventative pelvic health. It's a big ask, and I get that. That's why I'm loud on a podcast, right? Because I want the patient to come to me already knowing. And I tell them, I'm like, this is what, if you ask what all the pelvic floor experts do, all the hormone experts do, I have an article in Oprah Daily that talks about me going to go get my vaginal estrogen and how expensive it is. So like if people already know by Oprah Daily that I'm on vaginal estrogen, I have no problem telling you guys like I'm here preventatively because I will be damned if my labia go away. I get UTIs, I get dysuria, I get clitoral phimosis and I get decreased sensation with my orgasms. I will be damned if I wait for that to happen before I get started on vaginal estrogen. So those are my thoughts. Anybody who looks at postmenopausal vulvas. You guys, how many people in urology residency learned that labia minora go away postmenopause? Not in everybody. They're protective. They protect the urethra from trauma. I think they play a role in preventing UTI and vaginitis. I had to learn that. I learned that seven years into private practice when I went to an Ishwish conference and I was like, I'll be damned. I just thought they were born that way. Like I did not know. Yeah, Dr. Weinberg says she didn't learn it till she saw a Rachel Rubin lecture. I'll be damned if my body parts dissolve and disappear before I try to like get them back, which you can't always. Anyways, tangent. I literally have 15 minutes left. Who can't be on systemic? This is systemic hormones, not vaginal. Active or history of breast cancer. That's a fascinating topic. Stay tuned on my podcast where I'm interviewing like literally next week. And OB-GYN, who is treated for breast cancer, who's on systemic hormones on my podcast next week. Like and subscribe for more. But the, my point about this is we have 3.5 million breast cancer survivors. We are effing good at, at curing breast cancer these days. And they are suffering. You think the baby boomers are pissed? You should see the breast cancer patients. They're pissed. They want hormones. We have 20, again, I'm tangenting. We have 25 papers showing that hormones after a breast cancer diagnosis are safe. We have 25 papers showing that estrogen after breast cancer diagnosis is safe. And I'm a urologist, so I see how we treat the men. When I started, testosterone caused prostate cancer. You had to stop it. You couldn't get back on it. Okay, now you can get back on it if you've been treated and cured for five years. Okay, now you can stay on active surveillance for your prostate cancer and stay on your testosterone. That all happened in about 10 years. So I know that the tide on breast cancer and hormones is gonna change. We don't care about quality of life in women like we care about quality of life in men. Is a complete bias. Unexplained vaginal bleeding, got to work it up. Liver disease, more for the oral estrogens, but then history of PE, stroke, and MI are pretty big no-nos for putting you back on estrogen, especially if it's been, been a while. So relative contraindication, smoking, and a significant cardiac risk. You can do a cardiac risk calculator if you want, if it's greater than 8 to 10% 
caution, you might have an increased risk on estrogen. Not everybody's going to agree with that. Also history of DVT, because transdermal systemic estrogen does not increase your risk of DVT. It's going to keep your risk of DVT the same. So you can say that like, okay, as long as you don't do oral, I'm not lowering your risk, but I'm keeping it the same as you already have having a DVT, what your risk is. So relative contraindication. If you're BRCA1 or BRCA2 and you've been treated, especially if you've been treated with oophorectomy and mastectomy, it is okay to take systemic hormones. You have a relative of breast cancer, it's perfectly fine. And then vaginal estrogen for all, ACOG has a statement on this. I put aromatase in parentheses. We've got one or two studies that are not randomized control trials showing a possible increased rate of recurrence. But the people who scrutinize those say that those studies are not holding up. But I won't say, yeah, we have no studies saying it, you know, that it's totally safe. So I put parentheses. I always say get an okay from your oncologist if they're on aromatase inhibitors. So best practices, if you have a uterus, you need a progestin. That progestin now can be used as a progestin secreting IUD or oral micronized progestin, which is a bioidentical, which was not used in the Women's Health Initiative. We don't think, if we think the E plus P arm increase your risk of breast cancer slightly, we think that's negated by using the micronized progesterone because it's bioidentical and works differently than a synthetic progestin does. You can continue for life as long as benefits outweigh your risks. Start within 10 years, best practice. I have so many, you know how many 60-year-olds I have on Instagram saying, I'm 60, now what? It's not a hard stop. It's just that your risk-benefit ratio is starting to change as you're getting out of that uh, timing hypothesis healthy cell window. Calculate your cardiac risk factor. Caution, have them optimize that. Up to date on your mammograms. We don't think hormones cause cancer. But if you have cancer, hormones may promote cancer. So up to date on your mammograms. Catch it early if you're going to find it. Remember, people who are on systemic hormones, if and when they get breast cancer, actually have decreased mortality. Non-oral estrogen is likely best, but oral estrogen is not a big, scary no-no. But oral estrogen, if we care about sex and desire, increases your sex hormone binding globulin because it's first passed through your liver. So possibly more decreased desire if you're on an oral estrogen, if that's important to people. If you vaginal bleeding postmenopause is never normal, you know, the guidelines say if greater than six months, because in that perimenopause, you're going to spot more. You've just given your body more hormones. I always do a vaginal ultrasound, refer to guide. You never, I never want to miss anything. And then financial considerations in doing what's cheapest. Cheapest is FDA approved products that have been around for a while that are covered by your insurance. We need cheaper products. This is not, this is not a 10-day course of antibiotics. This is 40, 30 to 40 years if you want to. That's why pellet, the pellet factories make me sick because they're thousands and thousands of dollars and these are long-term meds. I want women to stay on them and I want it to be sustainable and I don't want them to mortgage their house for their hormones. I tell them that they're going to need a couple of weeks or months to adjust to it. Guidelines say you don't have to check hormones. People are making a ton of money off of women doing urine hormones, cheek hormones, monthly hormones. We're just drawing a bunch of people's blood and charging them a ton of money. It's not necessary in most cases. So I want to, if I want to see where they are, certainly with testosterone, I want to see where they are. If they, I just had a woman, she swore up and down that her poor sleep was because of estrogen. She just swore. So we kept raising her estrogen dose. And finally I was like, can you go get your estrogen checked? And she did. And it was way high, like very, very high. And she's like, is it dangerous? And I'm like, well, it might be beneficial if you're trying to like sustain a pregnancy, but we need to get your estrogen down. And I'm like, and now we know that your sleep issues are not because of low estrogen. 
So I will check hormones, but not to make money off of women and not because you always need to check them all the time. You might need higher doses of estrogen in young people to get them symptom-free. One size does not fit all. Unanswered questions. Can we use this post-breast cancer? Like I just explained with testosterone and prostate cancer, I think this is changing. I will repeat, we have 25 studies showing safety of systemic hormones after breast cancer. What do we do about preventative? It's FDA approved for prevention of osteoporosis. United States Physician Services Task Force, which all urologists, we already don't like this organization. For anybody who needs to remember, they told us not to screen for prostate cancer. Same people. They say you should not use hormones for primary prevention of any chronic disease. So on a national level, they're saying don't throw this drug on everybody to primarily prevent a disease. I don't think that's like some people are like, they're anti-hormone. I don't think it is. What drug do we use universally for primary prevention of a disease in this country? Not statins, not even baby aspirin. That's a big ask for primary prevention of any disease on a global health thing. So I don't, I don't think it's a crazy statement that, you know, the big pro-hormone people are like, they need to, you know, they scared people. And I'm like, if you listen to what they exactly said, which on a public health, should we give this on a public health to everybody to decrease disease? They're like, no, but we don't do that with any other meds either. Should we, I was talking to my brother about testosterone this week. And he's like, isn't it interesting that the only indication for testosterone for women post-menopause is to have them sleep with men more? And I'm like, yes, brother, that is absolutely nuts. My opinion on this is we know testosterone has a role in our brains and in our bones. Who was at the AUA this year? How many lectures did I go to saying we need to get hypogonadal men on testosterone to protect their bones, to protect their bones, to protect their bones, to protect their bones, right? We care more about male bone health than female bone health in this country. It's absolutely insane. Who has worse bone health? The women do. So I think there is absolutely a role for testosterone, for mental clarity, for bone health, for muscle strength, for, you know, well-being. I think we just haven't done the studies because I think we haven't looked. Big mistake, we gendered hormones. Testosterone is the male hormone. So if you gendered hormones, you made it disappear from 50% of the population. And then the other unanswered question is, what do we do with the boomers? Who is the safest to start on because they have not been given hormones all these years? I'm here to make you guys think. This is just the United States Preventative Services Task Force saying that they don't recommend to prevent a chronic health problem on a public health level. You can read that online if you want to. So what causes breast cancer? It's not estrogen. It might be estrone, right? So fat makes a different type of estrogen. We just throw estrogen on everything. We have estradiol, estriol, estrone, all these things. What is it about adipose tissue and the hormones it makes that promotes breast cancer? We have not studied into this. So we just blanketed said estrogen and it's not accurate. Inactivity, lack of exercise, alcohol. Any woman who comes to me who says estrogen causes cancer, I ask her how much alcohol she drinks. And if she drinks any alcohol, I say you're, you're willingly, electively increasing your risk of breast cancer by taking a known toxin, which is completely not necessary for life. But many people don't know the risk of the correlation of alcohol, especially if you start doing one drink a day, two drinks a day, significantly increases your risk of breast cancer. Women are afraid of the wrong things. That's the title of this talk. What about testosterone? All bodies have testosterone. Female bodies just make it at one-tenth the male dose. I hate to gender stereotype, but bodies with ovaries, whatever you want to say. 50% of 
the nation makes testosterone just at one tenth the dose of the other 50% of the population. The only reason we have right now is for low desire. Ishwish has a position paper on it. This is just the takeaway messages from the position paper, basically telling you how to give testosterone to women postmenopausally for hypoactive sexual desire disorder. Compounded testosterone pellets, IM injections, and oral formulations are not recommended. We use the male dose. We dose it at one-tenth. Urologists are not afraid of testosterone. We're just not. OB-GYNs are way more afraid of testosterone than urologists are. You can use the testum, generic testum. 30-day supply lasts women 300 days. So for a three, I just got our exodus on my phone today in my town. The price actually went down. It was $119. And then I just updated this today because now my price is $90 for 300 days of testosterone. The barrier here, I just literally had a pharmacist call my office and tell me that like, did you know that this patient's a female? And I'm like, her body, her choice. My good sir. Pharmacists don't know that 50% of the population has testosterone in their bodies. So a big barrier to care is the pharmacists, at least in my town for this. So we know, we learned this at the AUA this year, if nobody else taught you this before, men who are hypogonadal with testosterone have an increased risk of cardiovascular events. We know this in women too. It just does not make the news. This is looking not at supplemented testosterone, but just in situ testosterone. The women with the lowest testosterone concentration in their body post-menopause have a higher risk of ischemic cardiovascular disease. This is not just for men. This is also for women. We care about men's bones and we care about men's hearts. We just care about women's breasts and her sex drive because 90% of them are supposed to be sleeping with the men. All right, a word about this. I'm not fully opposed, believe me, but I use a bio, I use FDA approved legit insurance covered stuff as much as I can. The hormones we use for hormone replacement now are bioidentical, estradiol and micronized progesterone. That's bioidentical. Bioidentical is now used as a marketing term for people to go in and pay thousands of dollars for all your labs and expensive pellets. The FDA has plenty of bioidentical hormones. It's like, I put candy bars here. It's like if you put natural on a candy bar, do you guys know what natural actually means on a food product? It means nothing. It means nothing. It is a marketing term. So whether on your candy bar or bioidentical on your hormones, it's a marketing term, usually used to correlate women's fears about hormones. So I don't think we should market hormones like they did in the 70s, but I think we should not be afraid of them. I think urologists are very comfortable with hormones, and I think urologists should work on equality for everybody and just know that they're not safe. They're not unsafe. Even if you don't prescribe them, do no harm, but take no shit is my, uh, my motto. So where to go? North American Menopause Society, they're great. I got NAM certified, not because I thought the test was particularly useful in training me to prescribe them, but because as somebody who's forward-facing in the public with my podcast and my Instagram, what I say matters, and I want to be as legitimate and by the books as I can. Heather Hirsch is an internal medicine doc who's fantastic. She's got a podcast. She's got a book coming out in June, and she's very pro-hormone. And then I do, I do what I can on my podcast, which is about sex. I, I have lots of hormone stuff on there, there now because the need for good information is insane. And I'm trying to meet that need. So are we being equitable? I put up two thought questions just to have people think. How do we treat men when they have low testosterone? Do we tell them it's a normal sign of aging and they should just deal with it and maybe try some acupuncture? No, we give them hormones. 
if a person wants to transition and live their life differently uh, as a male or female, trans female also, do we say you can take these hormones until age 50 and then you're going to stop so you can be like all the other women who don't have hormones? We don't say that. Are we being equitable to all genders when it comes to hormone care? I would say that we're not. Not to be feisty, but to get you to think, who's going to tell Caitlyn Jenner to stop her hormones because she's 70? We should stop hormones, right? Shouldn't we? No. Her body, her choice. If you want to stay on hormones, if your benefit outweighs your risks, you can stay on hormones until you die. So I'm only a little bit feisty just to get people to think on how we, how we help people out. This is what the NAMS guidelines said in 2022. For women aged younger than 60 years or who within 10 years of menopause and have no contraindications, the benefit-risk ratio is favorable for treatment and prevention of bone loss. These are the two FDA-approved indications. I have lots of women now who are like, I saw my mother go down with dementia and a hip fracture and I will be darned. I want to protect my brain. So I have a lot of women saying that. We don't have the data to do that on a national level for primary prevention. But um, I think it will be coming. I think I think if we care about anything besides breasts, I think we do care about the brain. I don't think many people care about the number one killer of women, which is heart disease. I just don't think it's it doesn't trend, right? But I do think women care about their brains. So I think more data will be coming out on that. All right, thank you. I love you. Thanks for listening. I will stop sharing so we can do... Uh... Yeah, we need a black box warning on alcohol. That is absolutely right. Canada, God bless Canada, Canada's government just came out last month with a statement saying there is zero safe levels of alcohol, which is wonderful for on a public health thing to actually make that statement. I don't see that happening in America. 70 cents of every dollar purchased on alcohol goes to the government in this country. So we, they have a big financial incentive for, I mean, our physicians taught that alcohol, you know, causes cancer and nobody should drink. They're taught alcohol in moderation, right? We bought that pitch line to keep people drinking. Alcohol, there's this amazing study out of China. They had men quit drinking who had erectile dysfunction. The erectile improvement is astounding when you stop drinking alcohol. What urologist has taught that? It's amazing. All right. What do I tell patients about vaginal laser treatment for GSM? I love the question. Lasers are good for skin. We laser our face. We laser our tattoos off. We laser our skin damage off. Lasers are good for skin. I think lasers can help GSM skin. It doesn't help your relationship. It doesn't make you orgasm better. It doesn't improve your sexual desire. It doesn't make you like your partner better. All the reasons that women go pay thousands of dollars to the like non-pelvic floor experts. So I'm very clear. This is a skin improvement plan, just like lasers on your face are but it will not fix all these other wishes that you wished that it did down there. I think for like a, a very atrophic person, it can kickstart like that with physical therapy, with vaginal estrogen, especially for the dyspareunia can be useful. We've got some decent studies. The two that are out in America for the most part are incredibly safe. I don't think our risk of harm, the only risk of harm is emptying somebody's wallet quickly because it's not insurance covered. So many people have fatty liver, mildly elevated LFTs. Yeah, they need to stop drinking also. Check into carbs. Carbs will do that for you. I think they may still do okay on HRT. Yeah, I agree. Versus full-blown cirrhosis. But you're going to see that on the warnings is liver disease. Any chance the vaginal estrogen black box warning is going to be removed? 
Fantastic question. I think this is good as done. I was talking to Rachel Rubin because we're like heading, we've got lawyers, we've got big menopause organizations, we've got grassroots and we've got decent social media following. This is as good as done. We just need to figure out the how. So I actually read the 2018 FDA rebuttal to ACOG because I'm like, I need to know why they said no to ACOG, right? Why are they going to say yes to us and say no to ACOG? And the overwhelming was they didn't think we had enough data we, like I was doing this in 2018, but that we had enough data to say that vaginal estrogen is significantly safer than systemic, basically significantly safer than the scare stuff that came out of the WHI. Cause I would say systemic hormones are quite safe. So yeah, for, to me, it's as good as done. It's going to be my like career defining, not that I'm going to do this on my own. Like this is literally like a movement that's going to happen, but I'm like, I'm going to do that and be like, I'm done. I'm out. <laughs> that was fun. Can you comment on three times a week versus daily on vulva? NAMS says three times a week, but why? It's a good question. It really is. You know, I don't put sunscreen on my face three times a week or two times a week. I have not, I saw, I read this a while ago. I have not looked at it recently of like, if it's enough to like keep that skin happy for a couple of days, right? It really does. I think the loading dose and especially the loading dose doesn't make any sense because if anybody's going to get side effects, it's with the loading dose. That's why I've totally ditched the loading dose thing on this. A lot of people are like, I don't like, I have a cream bias real quick because I want labial, urethra and clitoral coverage and the Vagifem tabs just simply can't deliver. And some women are like, My, it's so messy. I'm like, number one, just go down on the dose. You know, if you're losing a whole bunch of product the morning after you put it in, go down on the dose. But then my second comment is like, do you remember your 23 year old vagina? It wasn't dry. We just forget the copious moisture that the 23 year old vagina was. I put my face cream on daily, not three times a week. Exactly. So yeah, we're, we're here. For, I think, you know, urologists prescribing hormones. For me at first, same thing about me talking about sex. I was like, I'm going to be an outlier. Everybody's going to think I'm crazy. What's a urologist doing, doing female hormones? And then I'm like, it makes perfect sense, you guys. We're not afraid of testosterone. We give people hormones for their quality of life. We give people hormones to improve their health. It makes perfect perfect sense to me that urologists would be like very pro-hormone because we already are doing it for half of the population. Opinion on companies like Winona that offer mail order HRT options with limited medical supervision other than cost, lack of insurance. Yeah. A lot of startup telemed companies like Winona Alloy is another one that I, I love. Alloy, A-L-L-O-Y. If you want face cream, go to Alloy. I think the discount code is Kelly. Get some discount on your Estriel face cream. Here's what's happening. So we have two decades of physicians who suck at treating hormones. We have half the population going through menopause. Our healthcare system is tapped at this time. We can't accept all these women reading the freaking New York Times every single week, telling them how important it is to get their menopause treated. We simply do not have capacity for it. So they were born out of a need, 100%. The pellet people were born out of a need, in all fairness. That's why I think doctors should do this is because I want it to be cheap and I want it to be FDA approved. But the hormone companies were born out of a need because doctors are not helping women. The average woman suffers for years before she gets her menopause listened to. The first thing she's usually offered for her, her hypogonadism, if we want to call it that, is an antidepressant. Our medical system sucks so much, they're going to these. So I love these online companies because they are providing access. I think they're doing a good job. I think anybody, especially Alloy, because I know about that one. Winona, I think, is a little more compoundy, woo-woo-wee, but I haven't looked into it lately. I think if you're a cowboy, 
the powers that be are going to find you and call you out. But I also know that there are big people behind these companies, not big like me, like big, like big people, because menopause is a $600 billion industry, according to a recent Forbes publication. This is not like, let's get a couple of people on hormones because they like the whiners want it. It's like, this is 50% of the population. We simply don't have enough urologists, gynecologists, or family medicine docs. Like people can't get a family practice doc in my town now, let alone the more we're empowering women to like actually advocate for what she wants for her body. Vaginal estrogen cream. Real quick, good RX, estradiol. Do not give women freaking Premarin. It's brand name, it's expensive. Even Medicare, I had a Medicare lady, her vaginal estradiol cost her $80. I said, get the good RX app on your phone. She's like, I have a flip phone. And I'm like, God damn it, Medicare, why can't you charge $30 for this? Like cash is cash is now less expensive than what your horm- what your insurance is. Yes, a lot of menopause money is wasted on expensive supplements, hands down, absolutely. There might be some growing data on the role of probiotics and the gut microbiome preventing osteoporosis and and improving bone health. Estrogen plays a role in the gut microbiome. It's fascinating. I'm super excited to read more about this, but like to be like, there might be something on a probiotic for gut health in the declining estrogen population. But again, to, to put out the problem with supplements is they're simply not FDA approved. I didn't talk about today DHEA. DHEA is a pro hormone, basically. It's going to convert into testosterone and estrogen, usually testosterone, but it's not patentable. It's naturally occurring, right? So it's a supplement. We don't have a lot of great studies. Some studies we show, like, show that DHEA is actually really healthy and, and good for postmenopause women. But it's like, as a menopause expert, I can't tell you to go buy a DHEA supplement. Like, it's completely unstandardized. We don't have great studies, but women are taking oral DHEA a lot. They ask me about it all the time. We need more studies on it, but we're not going to get a pharmaceutical company behind it because it's not patentable. That's the big question again about female testosterone. Uh, So Australia is the only country in the world that has an Australia FDA approved equivalent for female dosing testosterone. It's called Androfem and it's a patch. Patch? Pretty sure it's patch. They were, they actually have data on a patch in America, but they pulled the patch off the market. The FDA said, here's some bias for you. The FDA said in order to approve a female dose testosterone product, it will be a $1 billion study. They're demanding like five to 10 year cardioprotective studies on it, which they do not demand for the male testosterone. And we have how many male testosterone products now? A good dozen. So like we can hold our breath for a female testosterone product. It's not because it doesn't work and it's not because females don't have testosterone. It's because the FDA has made it financially prohibitive for a pharmaceutical company to do the work to get a female. And people ask me, they're like, can we just wait for a female testosterone? And I'm like, if the FDA gives us a female testosterone product, you know how expensive it's going to be? Because that company needs to make back its $1 billion study, right? I'm still going to give them off-label test them 1% for $90 for a 300-day supply. So yeah, once you start becoming an advocate in this world, you realize how incredibly crazy it is. All right, guys. Thanks for staying till the end. Sorry I ran over, but it's so good. Um, let me know what else you need. I'm just a urologist doing private practice, trying to freaking help the women because equality is so important to me. And, you know, I need somebody to take care of me. 
because I'm perimenopause, even if my dad doesn't believe it. So thank you. Thanks to everybody. And uh, I think Swoo is going to cut the audio and put it on their podcast. I'm going to cut my audio, put it on my podcast. And uh, we're here for you. Thank you so much, Kelly. Thanks, everybody. Have a great night. Hey friends, if you love what I'm doing on this podcast and love who I'm interviewing, I want to encourage you to join the private membership where you get a front seat pass with all of my interviews and you can even ask them questions. In addition, there's going to be group coaching with me and my upcoming guest coach to take this work, to go deeper, to live your best sex and love life. Join today at www.kellycaspersonmd.com membership. I'll see you on the inside.